0: Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Today we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 21 through 22 and Philippians chapter 4, primarily Philippians chapter 4, because uh, Joshua is just going to be outlining some allotments of land, as you'll see. So let's go ahead and pray as we open God's word together. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we just glorify you in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask you, God, as we open your word, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us. That you would strengthen us. We just say to you, Lord, that your word is a lamp into our feet and it's a light into our path. Your word gives us what we need today to not only stay strong, but to move forward and advance your kingdom. Lord, we just pray at the onset of the day that, Lord, you would give us everything that we need in order to accomplish your will and to do what you're asking of us. And so I thank you for blessing us with this, during this time. Pour out your Holy Spirit. Anoint your word as we read it and as we consider how we can apply it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Remember, we're looking at Joshua chapter 21 and 22 and Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and pull out Joshua chapter 21. And I just want to make a reference uh, to what's going on here in the book of Joshua. We've been reading for several days about how Joshua is, at this point, after many battles in the promised land, he is dividing up the land among the tribes of Israel. And this is so important because it is in fulfillment to the promise of God, which we actually read about, I believe, in Genesis chapter 15. It's the very land that God promised to Abraham that his descendants would live within. Now now think about that. Genesis 15, verse 18 through 21, God makes Abraham a promise. Your descendants... Shall be in this land. Abraham's looking at all the land. And now hundreds of years later, that fulfillment is coming to pass. In Joshua twenty-one specifically, verse one through forty, what happens is the Levites who actually have no allotment of land, that they don't get what the other tribes do because their inheritance is the Lord, and it's the ministry of the priests that they've been given. Now they're attending not only to the Lord and the tabernacle, which later would become the temple. But also to the people, they're advocates, they're mediators between God and man. And so theirs is the the ministry of the tabernacle, really a ministry to the Lord. They come to Joshua and they say, Moses promised us that we would have towns that would be divided to us among the allotments of land that the other tribes were receiving. And so they ask for those towns, and I believe they're given throughout the various allotments of land among the other tribes, 48 different towns. That's what this chapter is really all about. There's not much necessarily to say, but I did want to read to you verse 43, because it continues with that theme of God being faithful and fulfilling his promises. Listen to what it says here in Joshua 21. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, that's Genesis 15, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, that's peace on their borders, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and none of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. That to me is just a profound scripture because it is a conclusion and really a summary of this whole season that Israel was in as they went into the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had given way in advance to Abraham, and now they're living in that fulfillment. So aren't we thankful that God is faithful and fulfills his promises? That's what we read about here in Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 22 is actually all about uh, Joshua commissioning the sons of the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to go back across the Jordan River and dwell in the lands that Moses promised them. You may not remember this, but just as a way of reminder, Moses had basically made a deal, if you want to call it that, with Gad, Reuben, and half-tribe of Manasseh. They wanted that area, that land that was right before they were to go into the promised land, before the river Jordan. That's the land that they wanted. And Moses said, you can have this land, but you need to cross the River Jordan. Paul's writing this from prison. It's one of the prison epistles. He's concerned about the church. He's writing to them to encourage them, to strengthen them. But also he he heard of disputes. He heard of division. And he wanted to address those things. And that actually is part of what we read about here in Philippians chapter 4. And I want to go ahead and read it and then make a few remarks And we'll read verse 1, Philippians 4. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul begins to conclude the letter of Philippians to this church, and he expresses his great love for them, as well as an exhortation to stand firm in the midst of their struggle. Now, this is really important because Paul's not saying stand firm, just be strong. He's not saying You know, keep your head up. He's not saying things will get better. He's not giving them some kind of strange or weird optimism. He's actually telling them to stand firm in the purpose for which he has already taught them, commissioned them, given to them. Stand firm in the purposes of God. Stand firm in the sharing of the gospel. Stand firm in the advancing of the kingdom. The thing we cannot do is remove the purpose of God from the scriptural exhortations. And that happens all the time today. Now, if you ask me, Ben, do you like devotionals? Uh, Not like what we're doing right here, but books that are devotionals based on the word. I like some scriptural devotionals. There's many of them that I don't like. And the reason that I don't like some of the devotional books that are written today is because they'll take verses like this and they'll make them almost humanistic. And what I mean by that is they propagate this idea that you can stand firm just in whatever Uh, situation of life that you're in, whatever your circumstance, just stand firm. Everything will work out. It's, It's kind of like this weird optimism that gets promoted in today's world, and scripture becomes sort of this basis for which people can have that strength, so to speak. But it's not founded or grounded in what it was originally intended to mean. When Paul speaks to this church, it's connected to this entire letter where he's exhorting them, to stay true to the purpose of God. He's exhorting them to be reminded of their mission and their ministry and their message that is Jesus Christ that they're carrying. And so we can't just walk into the scripture and read it and say, well, we're going to extrapolate these principles in some weird, strange way. The readers of scripture did not know that. The writer of scripture in this particular instance was Paul. He did not mean that. And so we've got to be really careful, as Paul told Timothy, to rightly divide the word of truth. Who wrote it? who did they write it to, how did the readers hear it, and what does it mean for us? So what does it say, what does it mean, and what does it mean for me? And that's the third component. We can understand what it means for us once we understand what it meant for them. And that's why going through the whole Word of God in a year or however long it takes us is so vital for us to do, because otherwise we cannot rightly divide the Word of Truth. We're just going to pick verses out. And when we're discouraged, we're going to say, well, this verse is meant to encourage us. Yeah, but to what end and for what purpose? All of us get discouraged. All of us go through issues. All of us maybe face some doubts. We have things that happen. We have thoughts that come into our mind. But Paul encourages the church to stay tethered to the purpose of Jesus Christ. And that is what keeps us moving forward as we're intended to. And so we have to read this idea of standing firm in the purposes of the Lord, not our own, not just to have a better day, not just that the sun's going to come out tomorrow. That's humanism. And by the way, I've seen a lot of humanistic principles in the church and in teaching. And that's why I'm speaking to it is because humanism is this idea that, that we can do things in and of ourselves. Now, naturally speaking, there are a lot of things that we can do. But when it comes to standing firm, when it comes to forgiving people, when it comes to love, when it comes to all of that, when it comes to being transformed and having a renewed character and becoming the people that God created us to be, we can't do that without the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that without the model and the example of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to remember that scripture advocates that position, that Jesus is always our example, that the Holy Spirit is always our power. And so I'm reminding you of that today. As we continue in the book of Philippians, we read here in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 4. Here's what it says. Paul goes, I urge you, Judea, and I urge you, Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, again, part of why Paul wrote this letter was because he heard of some disputes. He heard of potential division, and he was concerned about that because he had a lot of skin in the game. He helped to start this church. He was very vested in this community. He desired for them to move forward. He desired for them to grow and expand so that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And so when a dispute happens among the church and people were offended, as these two women seemingly were... He wanted to address it, and he actually does. Now, these two women, Judea and Syntyche, they had a significant presence in the early church in this city. Some scholars believe that these two women were leaders of house churches. Now, this is just a moment to pause for us right here. Sometimes today, based on a few passages, namely five of them in the New Testament, there's this idea that that women do not have as significant of a role in God's plan, purpose, and the structure of his church, as I believe God intends in his word. And so that actually deserves several lessons, several sessions, and I'm certainly glad to do that. But there is this reality and there is this truth that women are half of the human population, approximately, maybe a little more, a little less. And they're, they are not merely the counterpart to man or the subordinate to man. We, we have an essential equality, male and female And God made both of us in his image with unique qualities that are in the likeness of God that we were created. And God intends to fully use men and women in the structure of his church to minister in power and effectiveness. And I just want to pause and say this, that these women were mentioned in this letter, not just because they were women that had a problem with each other, But rather, it shows us that the presence of women in the early church was so significant that if there was a dispute among these two gals, it was because they had a sense of leadership. It was because they had a sense of presence. They had a sense of influence. They weren't just two people in the background that a few people knew about. They were two individuals that had such a striking presence and ministry in this particular church that if they didn't get their dispute settled, it would affect the rest of the body in that location. And this means to us that this can happen among all of us. But I just wanted to mention that women play a significant role in leadership among God's people. If you're not convinced of that, there are a lot of resources I would like to share with you because many are confused about this. They read a few chapters or they read a few verses, and they suppose that that somehow means that women can't play roles of leadership, which they certainly can. But this, I believe, actually shows us that women play a significant role in the life of the church. But it also shows us that disputes, offenses can lead to division in the life of the church as well. Listen to me. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people offended in church. And this is what Paul actually is talking about. He's saying that you need to come into reconciliation. I urge you to settle your disputes. I urge you to to handle these matters and to do that swiftly. Why? because our inability to reconcile with people, to whatever degree that we can, live at peace among all men as much as it depends on you. If we're not able to do that, number one, it will actually cause a spiritual cancer in the church that begins to eat at various things. It also causes something of our joy and our love for one another and our ministry moving forward to erode. And that simply cannot be. When Jesus paid such a high price, with his precious blood for us to be able to continue to bring Jesus to people and people to Jesus. We've got to remember this is not about us. It's not about our disputes. It's not about us being offended. It's about Jesus being glorified. And that really is our primary concern. So Paul pleads with them because there is something unraveling as a result of their offenses. Have you ever been offended at church? I know I have. Sometimes I have this unrealistic expectation on the people of God that they're not going to do anything wrong, say anything wrong, or treat me in a way that maybe I would find outside the church. And that's just not the case. The church of Jesus Christ is the people of God. We know that God paid a price for us to be transformed, be given a new nature, and follow Jesus. We're all learning how to do that together. And as we do, what we're finding is that we don't do it perfectly. We misunderstand each other. We say things we shouldn't. We do things we shouldn't. We sin. We make mistakes. And as we do that, not only do we need to have grace, but we need to have a heart to reconcile. We need to have a heart to embrace repentance. We need to have a heart to listen. We're not all right all the time. Maybe not even right half of the time. And if we can embrace that and understand it, we realize and we recognize that God wants to use us in his plan. But in order to do that, he has to be able to mold us and shape us. Are we moldable in the hands of the Lord? Or do offenses make us hard so that God can't mold us and shape us into the people he wants us to be, into the church that he wants us to be, to reflect his glory in our location? And it's sad when we can't come together. It's sad when we can't reconcile. It's sad when there is a lack of awareness and inability to repent, but we want to be people from this example that come together, repent, reconcile, and move forward for Jesus' sake. We read also here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and I think this is where Paul starts to talk about how it is that we reconcile, how it is that we stay clean. We want to stay clean in our relationship with God, and we want to stay clean in our relationships with others. And this is what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the shalom of God, which surpasses all comprehension, anything the mind can drum up, all ability for us to reason and comprehend. He will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Ponder. He's talking about the mind still. Dwell on these things. Be absorbed in these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I want to make some remarks here because I believe, as Paul first addresses, there's a dispute and there's offenses among two significant people in the church. I believe what he's doing is he's giving so, sort of a list on how it is that we keep our relationships clean. Not merely how they just re- reconcile, that needs to happen, but how do we stay in a place? where we're clean in our relationships with one another. And the first thing he says is rejoice in the Lord. Maybe you're not used to using the word rejoice or know what it means, but it means to take delight. It means to be glad. It means to be joyful. But notice he says in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This keeps this keeps us understanding what James even said. James talked about, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. And he goes on to say why we can do that. The reason that we can count it joy is because what it will produce. We're not going to be joyful because of a trial, but we can be joyful in a trial because we know that as we find our joy in the Lord, our hope in the Lord, we know what's coming. We know that God's going to produce something inside of us. So when we rejoice, it's not vain and it's not optimism. It's hope, faith, and expectation. Our faith is in God knowing that he's doing something inside of us that we can't see. And our expectation is that good fruit will be produced as we simply focus on him. We can always have joy in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. You say, well, Ben, that's easy to say. How do you you actually obtain that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because he tells us here in just a few verses later. But before he does, he says to them, let your gentleness be known to all. There's another translation that says, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. This is for us to have Christ-like consideration for others. Gentleness is not this idea that sort of in a pious way, we kind of have this insecurity. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not really, I'm supposed to be gentle and quiet. Gentleness is being considerate towards others. We can say it's it starts with listening. It starts with not being aggressive and not being defensive, not trying to be right, not trying to be the smartest person in the room. Have you ever done that where you just automatically get defensive and you start to have something well up in your heart because like a lawyer, you want to make a case? Well, let me just tell you, I'll go ahead and confess Ben Dixon. I tend to be a lawyer. My downfall is that I want to be right. And so over the years, God has worked and worked and worked on me, and He is still working on me. I just got to be honest with you because there is something in me that wants to prove my case, that wants to be right. And I know that in one sense, of course we want to be right. We want to be accurate. We want to stand on the word. We want to make sure that it's the truth. But we can take that to an extreme where our nuance, our semantics, our details, all of those have to be perfectly right. In exclusion to other people's vision and version and vantage point. And we've got to be willing to listen because we carry a piece. I mean, God's truth is His truth, but the way we see things is not always complete. In fact, I would say a lot of times it's not complete at all or not even close. And the more we can be gentle and not defensive, the more we can listen to one another and hear where we're coming from and find that resolution, that reconciliation, our ability to work together with each other. If not, we are going to be all alone, and that's not okay. For us to read scripture and to say it's all about being together, serving one another, forgiving one another as God has done in us through Christ, we've got to remember that in order to, for us to actually do this, we have to learn how to be gentle with each other, and that's the way we approach each other. That's the way we speak to one another. That's the way we listen to each other, and so he says be gentle and let it be known to all. And he specifically, I believe, applying it to those two um, women who potentially are leaders in this church that he had addressed. And then he goes on to say, be anxious for nothing. Now, anxiety, as you know, is a mental distress. There's an uneasiness, and it it, it equates to um, a, a worry that's counterproductive, obviously. It's where we're absorbed in a, a worry and a concern. Sometimes it's not grounded or it's not really founded In reality or truth and fear plays a massive role in anxiety sometimes when I think of fear I think fear is it's a it's a false future if you could put it that way it's projecting a false future we're afraid of what could be in the future even though we're not in the future even though we don't know what will happen we start to project this false future well this is going to happen And the fact is, we don't know what's going to happen. But he says, be anxious for nothing, that we don't need to be absorbed in our minds with this um, this unfolding future that we know not. We need to be absorbed in God. And he gives us the antidote for anxiety. And let let me just be really clear. I don't know all the facets of anxiety. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm not a mental health specialist. But there are some basics that really will help us and i believe that he gives the antidote to a lot of the anxiety that we face the fear that we are dealing with and i'm using those um, synonymously for this purpose he says pray in everything with supplication and he goes with thanksgiving prayer is offering our situation our circumstance our fears our desires our hopes, our defeats. It's offering whatever we, wherever we are and whatever we have, we're offering that to God. We're saying, God, here's where I'm at, and I'm giving this over to you. And as we do that, as we do that with supplication, we also enter into a place of thanksgiving. And that means where we're drawing our attention away from the fear and the worry, projecting a false future. We're reflecting. Thanksgiving means we're reflecting on what God has done, and we're projecting what God will do. See, when we consider what God has done in our life, it gives us faith, hope, and expectation that God will do it again. Thanksgiving draws our attention away from the fear of what we think bad could happen and we realize that God is at work. Once again, I draw our attention to the book of James chapter one. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. Now, I don't know about you, but when you face a trial, when you face a difficulty, it's easy to just let that unravel in your mind and think how bad is this gonna be? When will this ever end? When is this gonna stop? What what did I do wrong? How did this happen to me? I thought God would never allow this. All of that starts to unravel in our mind and create like this massive structure where we sit in where we dwell in. it builds a house that's what a stronghold is a stronghold is a house made of thoughts and we actually live in that stronghold that house made of thoughts and those need to crumble those need to come down because they're not the truth number one they're not the truth of God number two and God is continuing to build day by day in our lives the reason that we have faith in God for our own lives and for the lives of other people around us is because God is always at work he's the same yesterday today and forever the Bible says we read it just this last uh, just the daily word yesterday work out your salvation or oh, this was two days ago work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is a God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his own good pleasure that we are working out our salvation because God is working in our lives And so we can walk out what God is working in. And this is what we have to keep ever before us. When disputes and difficulties arise, the enemy wants to churn that and stir that in our lives in order to make us drown in sorrow and self pity and anxiety and fear and worry. And that actually can, that that process can just unfold inside of us in a way where it's like a swamp or like quicksand. And wherever we step, we just feel like we're drawn into it. And God says you can break that through his word by offering where you're at and what's going on in your heart to God through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, friend, this is, this is not just a one-time deal. People have said to me, Ben, I've prayed about my situation. It hasn't gone away. Here's what I would say to you. Sometimes it doesn't go away. Sometimes it is a battle. And I want you to think of it that way. I want you to think about your life as a battle. I want you to know that the enemy wants to take you out. I want you to understand that there are forces of darkness in this world that do want to render us ineffective. When we know that, we take up arms. We take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You and I are in a war. And part of the way that the enemy is going to come against us, probably the primary way, is he wants to attack our thoughts. First, he wants to stop us from coming to Christ when we come to Christ, He wants to stop us from becoming like Christ. He wants to render us ineffective in kingdom purposes so that we would never share the glorious gospel with others. Isn't there so much joy that comes to you, that comes to me when we share the gospel with people, when we disciple others, when we teach them what God has taught us, what others have passed on to us? Isn't it a beautiful thing? Something happens in our hearts when the testimony of the Lord comes into play. It's amazing how that just all of a sudden changes the game. We stop focusing on ourselves and we start focusing on others. And I'll tell you what, when we start focusing on what God wants to do in other people's lives, God takes care of us. It's like the principle of generosity. If we're stingy and we hold on to everything that we have for ourselves, we will will be consumed with counting our chips. How much money do we have? How much do we have in the savings? How much do we have in our 401k plan? How much debt do we have? How fast can we pay that? We just get consumed with what we have, how much we have, and what that looks like. But when we start thinking about other people and what they don't have and how we can be generous to them, the Bible is very clear, just in the principle of generosity, that if we take care of others, God will take care of us. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all of these other things will be added to us. Proverbs says multiple times, if you water somebody else's garden, God will water yours. Isn't that kind of a funny principle? That if we water someone else's garden, I've been out in our yard lately with my family, and we've been weeding the garden, we've been taking out different things and removing stuff and watering and planting other things. It's amazing to consider if I were to focus on somebody else's garden that that somehow mine would be taken care of. And that's the principle. That same principle about generosity, as we think about and take care of others, God will take care of us, that actually applies as it pertains to our mindset. As we think about where somebody else is, as we think about their mental condition, even in this epi- or this pandemic right now, think about how other, what other people are going through, not just what we're getting or not getting, but how are other people? You know, some of us are struggling really deeply, really bad right now. I I don't, know, I don't know what you're going through, but but it's tough. But when we start thinking about what others are going through, when we think about those that don't maybe have what we have, those that have lost loved ones, those that are alone, those that are deeply struggling, there's always somebody in a worse place. And when we start caring for them, guess what God does? He starts caring for us. We get consumed with how God wants to use us in the life of someone else. And we notice how consumed the Lord is in strengthening us. And this is really powerful. He says, pray in everything with thanksgiving. So we offer God our prayers. We share with him our heart. We pour out our heart to God. We watch and we pray. And then what does he say? Um, this fifth thing that I want to mention to you, and the peace of God, the shalom of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all reason, all our ability to understand, it will guard our hearts. Another translation says will umpire our hearts. It will call the foul and the strikes. It will guard and umpire our hearts in Christ Jesus. God can settle the turmoil. When we talk about the peace of God, we're not talking about some psychological state of Zen. We're not talking about um, some place of tranquility. We are talking about God settling the churning and the turmoil by his presence in our lives. God's presence is always with us. If you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. But it doesn't mean that we're always aware of his presence. A prayer that we can pray is, God, make us aware of your presence Help us to be awake and alive to what you're doing. We know you're at work. We know you are moving. We know you are present, but I am not always aware of it. We are not aware of the presence of God when we are consumed with the offenses that we have with other people, the defenses that we are setting up in order to prove ourselves right rather than the reconciliation. And and honestly, when we allow that anxiety of that offense and our defense and the difficulties that we're facing when we allow that anxiety to continue to grow inside of us, it will grow. It will absolutely grow. And that discouragement will become disillusionment and deception. And before you know it, that thing will lay hold of us. But right now, God can break these shackles. Last night at our Ignite gathering, I had a word and I want to share it today because I believe it still applies. I saw this picture of a person that was bound by just like ropes of of thorns. If you can imagine like like a, a a branch on a rose bush but it was just long really really long with thorns and it was just wrapped around this person's wrists and arms and all the all the way around their chest torso and all and around their face and every time that per it was wrapped so tightly every time that person went to speak a thorn would would just go right into their cheek and it would cause it would cause a cut which which would automatically bleed and every time the person went to break free that those thorns would go into their skin and it would cause pain. And so what that person learned was if I don't move and I don't do anything, they were all lived in the fear of moving forward, doing anything, breaking free. I just have to stay in this place constantly mindful of I can't do this. I can't do this. If I do this, something's going to hurt. Something's going to happen. And as I saw this vision, I realized that, that this is what this can be like for us. We can be bound by the fear of what happens when we break free. What happens when we obey God? What happens when we speak out? What happens when we begin to pray? I could see this person, even if they begin to speak the name of Jesus or anything else, that thorn went into their cheek and it hurt. And I realized in my mind, these are not chains. These are not ropes that are tightly bound. These are just, this is like a, these are like thorns and thistles from a bush. You can break free. You can rip them off your face, your head, your chest, your torso. You can rip them off. They're not shackles. As we rip them off, it initially hurts. It hurts. And when we deal with things in our life, it initially hurts. But eventually we are healed. Those cuts are going to heal. That blood is going to dry up and we are going to become the healthy version that God has called us to become, moving freely as he has designed us to. Helping other people as he has called us to. This is what it's about. But when we are consumed with offense and when we are trying to make our defense, when when we are full of anxiety and fear instead of giving it to God and, and being having that peace of God released into our mind and our heart, it will stop the churning. It will stop the turmoil. And all of a sudden, the effectiveness that God has called us to, that we so desire, can be realized See, we've got to dismiss those things, disagree with those lies. The lie is, is that I can't do anything. The lie is that I can't say anything. That is a lie. We can. It might hurt. We might feel it. But listen, we will heal. We can be who God says we are. We can do what God says that we can do. Do not let offenses, disputes, division stop you from what God has for you. Reconcile. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. This is the word of the Lord for us and to us. And we've got to be reminded of that today because God has something for each one of our lives. And I want to be about it. I want you to be about it. I want us to be about it. We've got to see uh, all that God wants done in our generation, in our city, in our region, especially during these times. Tragedy is a great opportunity in the hands of the Lord. We rejoice, but we rejoice in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. We take our delight, And we consider it all joy as we look at him, as we consider him, as we expect the outcome that he gives and not anything less. And I wouldn't say it to you any other way. Amen and amen. Let's pray that God would give us his peace today, because I believe that's what the Lord will do as we simply ask for it. So Father, we do pray today in Jesus' mighty name that you would release your peace in us. We pray, God, that Your shalom would unfold and silence the churning and the turmoil right now. In fact, I just pray for everybody watching this, that if there is anybody facing fear, anxiety, or any of that that crippling work of our own mind or our situation, circumstance, and maybe even that uh, inciting of the enemy, we just pray right now that you would silence the churning and the turmoil, that you would release your mighty peace, and I pray, God, that you would just touch their physical body. Show them your affection. Show me your affection today. We set our minds and our hearts in alignment with you. We offer the prayer of our situation and our circumstance. We give you our fear and our anxiety. We give you our offenses and our defenses. We ask, Lord, right now that you would show us if we're not reconciled with somebody, that you would show us if something needs to happen. Lord, would you lead us with your wisdom to know what We ought to do and how we can do it. We thank you for this daily broadcast. We most of all thank you for your word, and your word will not return void, especially as we lay hold of it and seek to walk it out. And that's exactly what we ask for. Give us the grace to walk out your word, not just to read it or to know it, but to live it. And we thank you today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you today.